Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Amen. All right, how are we doing this morning, guys? Good? Awesome. Um, at this time, we'll go ahead and dismiss all of the little ones, three and five, six and seven to the little district. Three, two, five, not three and five. Skip the four-year-olds. Um, yeah, so <clears throat> we'll wait for those little ones to run out. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open, oh, go ahead and open them to Matthew chapter 28. <clears throat> Uh, we are going to be taking a look at a familiar passage that, if you've been in church long enough, um, you will have heard it before. You might have heard us talk about the Great Commission, uh, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Uh, what I hope to do this morning, though, is to encourage you and to excite you in the mission that God has called us to as believers. And so, even though you are familiar with it, or even though you may have heard it, or us talked about it, um, I am praying this morning that it is not something that you overlook or not something that you kind of just, um, I don't know, um, fall asleep on. I, I'm trying to think of the right word just to encourage you to, to hear God's word to us this morning, um, even though it is a familiar text. I think we have uh, times in which we can hear texts and you're saying, yeah, I, I've heard this before, I've heard us preach on it before, and you kind of zone out. Um, and so my hope and prayer this morning is that we wouldn't, that we would be excited about the mission that God gives to all believers. Um, this mission that God gives us here in Matthew 28 is not, um, it shouldn't be unfamiliar with us even though, you know, we may have heard it. Um, businesses all around us have mission statements, right? And so I'm going to read a couple and I'm going to ask you guys to interact with me to see if you know them just by their own mission statement. So this first company, their mission statement is to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. Does anybody know what that is? Nike, yes. It is, it is Nike. Um, so the next company, their mission statement is this. Uh, they are dedicated, dedicated to the highest quality of customer service, delivered with a sense of warmth, friendliness, individual pride, and company spirit. No, no, not Chick-fil-A. It's, it's like the Chick-fil-A of the sky. Maybe that'll help. Southwest. Southwest, yes. Southwest Airlines. All right, so this one should be familiar, at least to some of us in here. This company's mission statement is to be America's best quick service restaurant at winning and keeping customers. I can't... I, this is Chick-fil-A. That's Chick-fil-A's mission statement, man. Yes, it is. I'm sorry. All right, here we go. Okay. We've got three people who have worked at Chick-fil-A and one who owns it. Can't get that right. Awesome. <coughs> owns a store, not it completely. Um, all right, let's keep moving. So, finally, this last mission statement is uh, for this company is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful to everyone. Google, yes. These are mission statements that um, we know from companies who have said, hey, this is, this is what our mission is uh, in this world, what we are seeking to accomplish. This is our goal in the life of others. 
But God gives us as believers a mission statement as well that we find in this Great Commission. Our church has a mission statement that flows from the Great Commission. Does anybody want to take a guess at what that is? All right, that's fine. We got Chick-fil-A wrong, so I will at least read this. Our mission statement for the district church is to glorify God by making disciples through gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered community, gospel-centered service, and gospel-centered multiplication. We long to form holistic disciples who worship, belong, serve, and multiply themselves. And the mission that we have at this church overflows from the great commission that God has given to all believers. And that's what we're going to see this morning, is the mission of every believer is to make disciples, proclaiming the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ has died on our behalf, resurrected three days later, and is now seated at the right hand of God. And for those who place their trust in him can have hope and joy in this reality. So my main point this morning as we jump into this text is that gospel-centered disciples live on gospel mission. As H.B. Charles Jr. would say, the church is on mission for the Lord Jesus Christ. The last command of Jesus must be the first priority of his church. This is our priority, to be gospel-centered disciples that live on gospel mission. And we do this in three ways. We do this by trusting in Jesus' authority. We do this by obeying Jesus' commands. And we do this in confidence that Jesus is present with us as he calls us on this mission. So trusting in Jesus' authority, obeying Jesus' commands, and having confidence that Jesus is present with us is how we go and live gospel-centered lives on, gospel-centered, on gospel mission. So let's read what Matthew has to say this morning. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. As Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word this morning. Let us go to him in prayer and ask him to open our eyes and ears to what he has to say. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful reality of being called your disciples, that you have saved us from our sin and called us to yourself, and you've given us this commission to see others find joy and satisfaction in you. What a great endeavor that you have given to us. Help us to have the ears to hear this morning and the wisdom to receive your word so that we may be obedient to your call and to have joy in pursuing all that you have commanded. As your servant this morning, Lord, speak through me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It is for your glory and our joy that we praise you this morning. Open our eyes to help us behold these wonderful truths from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to set the scene this morning as Jesus is giving his great commission to his disciples. We find in verses 16 and 17 something to me very powerful, and it's this reality that God uses lowly people to start a gospel movement. You see, for the last 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, 
we see Jesus walking with his disciples who had abandoned him, who were in despair, who feared for their lives, who ran back to their old ways of living once he died. And yet, in those 40 days, he restores them. In those 40 days, he calls them to himself and reveals himself to them to show that, hey, I am resurrected. I have done what I said I was going to do. And then he calls them to a mountain in Galilee. <clears throat> now, Matthew shows us that it's the 11 that he calls. Some other gospel stories would tell us that there are up to 120 disciples there as Jesus is giving this great commission. But what we find is that their response to Jesus, whether it's the 11 or the 120, is worship and doubt. And this is what always amazed me about these two verses. Some pastors like to say that Jesus was ascending into heaven as he was giving this great commission and people were doubting. I don't know if Matthew tells us this. Maybe the other gospel writers do. But what we do know is that Jesus is with his disciples giving them their great commission to go into the world. And we see this task being given to people who are worshiping and who are also doubting. What an interesting group of people that Jesus would call to start a gospel movement, right? People who are looking at him in resurrected form and yet they still doubt. These are men who ended up fleeing when Jesus got arrested. One of them, Peter, Peter literally denied Jesus three times before Jesus was crucified. The other gospel accounts tell us that Thomas doubted until he saw the resurrected Christ and his scars. Matthew 24 shows us that there were disciples who were saddened and hurt and in despair, and they ran back to their old lives because they thought their Messiah had been killed. Think about these disciples for a second and who Jesus is giving this commission to. God didn't use the strongest or the wisest or the most craftiest disciples he didn't use some authorities or leaders or rich rulers to spread his name. God chose the weak and the fallible and the sinful disciples who a few days before were so panicked and scared they were running away in despair. Even think about the author here, Matthew, the tax collector, showing a little bit of humility even in himself that he might be a part of those disciples who doubted that Jesus is giving this commission to. I say all this for our hope and joy this morning. I bring this to our attention because these are important verses before Jesus gives the great commission. These are verses for us to ponder and think on that Jesus would use these disciples who were fearful 40 days before to go and start the gospel movement. It's important because if you ever believe that you cannot be used by God because of something in your life, I want you to look at these disciples. If you think that God can't use you because of some sin in your life or because you have an apparent lack of knowledge or you think you have a lack of knowledge of the gospel or you think that somebody else can speak more eloquently than you can, I want you to go back to these verses and look at the commission Jesus gives to these disciples who doubted. 
God commissions them to go and spread the good news of the gospel even in their fallibility, even in their doubting. What would give such a scared group of individuals such confidence to do this? It's the same power source that we put our hope in. When we go and share the gospel, calling people to repentance of their sins and trusting in the blood of Christ for their redemption, the same hope and power that these scared disciples had is the one giving them the commission. It's Jesus himself. And what hope do we have in sharing the gospel here and now, even in our sinful states, even when we doubt, even when we worry? It's Jesus. It's not our rhetoric. It's not what we can muster up. Our confidence is in Jesus. With no money and no buildings and no programs, these disciples went and witnessed to the world. The early church was so committed to this mission that when Paul and Silas showed up in Thessalonica, do you remember what was said? Acts 17 tells us that these men had turned the world upside down. That's what the city said about Paul and Silas because they were so committed to the gospel mission. And guys, the gospel still has the power to turn the world upside down. Do we believe it? Do you believe it? This is our call. This is our mission. And God uses the ordinary people like you and me to fulfill this mission. And we do this by trusting in Jesus' authority. We do this by obeying his commands and we do this by having confidence that he is with us. So let's take a look at how we see this authority that Jesus has been given through Matthew's writing. Look back at verse 18. Matthew writes, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If you were here a, a few weeks ago when we talked about uh, Jesus coming in on a donkey, Palm Sunday. What he was doing was he was announcing that he is king, that he has authority over all. It was his proclamation that he was coming for his kingdom by the way of the cross. And now that he is resurrected, and now that he is ascending into heaven and giving his disciples their mission, Matthew closes with that same phrase, all authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All, as Dwayne said a couple weeks ago, all means all. All authority. But I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want you to take Scripture's word for it. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to fly through these 10 points that, that Scripture shows the authority that's been given to Christ and to show you the scope and sphere of His authority that, that we see throughout God's word. The first is that he is the creator of all things. John 1, 3 says that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. The second is he is the sustainer of the world and he holds it together by the word of his power. 
Hebrews 1.3 tells us he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Paul reminds us in Colossians 1.17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Thirdly, Jesus governs all of nature. As the disciples in Luke 8 were crying out through a storm, they see Jesus stop the storm and then they say, who then is this that he commands even the winds and water and they obey him? Jesus rules sovereignly over Satan and all his demons. The Gospel of Mark reminds us that in Jesus' teaching authority, they ask the question, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. 1 John 5.18 tells us Satan cannot touch the children of God without God's permission. Everything Satan did, if you think about Job, everything Satan did to Job, he had to do with permission from God. Fifthly, Jesus rules with authority over all the affairs of history. This means that no king, no president, no chief, no prime minister, no governor, no mayor, no congressman ever takes office except that God through Christ puts him there. Daniel 2 and, and Daniel 2 and Daniel 4 tell us he removes kings and sets up kings. The most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. He does this according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Proverbs 21.1 tells us the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. Jesus rules over the affairs of history. Sixthly, he also rules over all diseases. Jesus has not lost any of his power and authority to heal that we see in the Gospels. Neither Satan, nor viruses, nor bacteria, nor broken chromosomes, nor cancer, nor infertility, no matter what disease there is, even in this pandemic, Jesus has absolute authority and sovereign rule over it. That's why we pray like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We pray in the power of God that he can. We pray with faith that he will. And we pray and have freedom that even if he doesn't, we are going to trust in his sovereign plan. Jesus rules and has authority over the sinful acts of man. I think this is a hard truth for us to hold on to, but it is true. Human beings cannot escape the sovereign authority of Jesus even by running down the alley of sin. This is important for us to understand as we live life on gospel mission. Because there will come a time, and maybe you have experienced this, where people will mock you for your faith, that persecution will come, that trials and tribulations may come from others because of what we believe. But we have to hold this truth tightly, that Jesus rules and has authority over the sinful acts of man. We see this right at the center of the gospel, that God has the rule over sinful man. We think about the life of Joseph and his brothers selling him into slavery. But what does he say at the end of Genesis? 
what you meant for evil, God meant for good. We look at the life of Job and how God continued to sustain him throughout all of his losses. We look at Jesus himself. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 15 as we looked at it last week that Christ died for our sins in what? In accordance with the Scriptures. Every sinful detail that is spelled out in Jesus' crucifixion from His betrayal to His disciples deserting Him, the soldiers gambling Him, Him being put on the cross, all of the ugliness of His death was planned and scripted according to the Scriptures. As we were reminded last week of Isaiah 53, it says, It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. God saw it fit that for us to be saved, the death of His Son had to happen. And Jesus Himself tells us in John 10 that no one takes His life, but He lays it down on His own accord. So Jesus has sovereign rule and authority even over the sinful acts of man. Nobody takes his life. Jesus also has authority over conversion. We see in Luke 18 when the rich young ruler comes and asks what he must do to be saved, Jesus says, sell all your possessions and follow me. And what he's revealing there is the idol in the heart of the rich young ruler because that man went away discouraged and in despair. And Jesus responds and says, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it, they asked, What must one do to be saved? And Jesus says, What is impossible with man is is possible with God. And I bring this story up because the very next chapter... Jesus does exactly what he says. What is impossible for man is possible with God. What's impossible for us, which is raising ourselves from the dead, which is having our hearts transformed by the gospel, is only possible through Christ. And God does just that. Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus, that wee little man who climbs up on the sycamore tree. What does Jesus do? He is a rich man who has stolen from his people and has all this wealth. Jesus transforms his heart, showing us that it is truly God who saves. My ninth point this morning about Jesus' authority is that Jesus has authority over death. As we learned last week in the resurrection, Paul telling us in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to be afraid of death, because we know that Jesus has conquered death on our behalf. And so that when we die or Christ calls us home, we will be in glory, in resurrected bodies. 
And finally, Jesus has absolute authority and power over the mission of his church. And here's the beauty of this truth. Here's the beauty of the Great Commission is that it will not fail. We, we have to understand that to have confidence to go on mission. That it will not fail. Jesus tells us he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. This should give us confidence to go and preach the gospel because Jesus has promised that it's not going to fail. And it's him who saves. And it's him who changes hearts. And it's him who gives us this opportunity to be a part of this mission. All of Christ's authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he promises that he will be with us to the end of the age. This risen, reigning King of kings and Lord of lords rules over this world and has absolute sovereignty, sovereign, sovereignty over his mission in the church. And he has called us to come alongside and be a part of it. And it's in this authority that Jesus gives us this commission. And in this commission, we can have confidence that the one who has authority over all heaven and on earth is with us and has told us that his kingdom will grow. And this should excite us. I've said this before, and I'll keep saying it again because I think it's a great example. As believers, every day is take your kid to work day. God is calling us to this mission, and he's not leaving us alone. He's telling us that in his authority over all heaven and on earth, he is with us. And that should give us confidence. Because gospel-centered disciples live on gospel mission. And we live on gospel mission in making disciples by being obedient to Jesus' commands. There's three commands that Jesus gives here in this great commission. And that is to go, to baptize, and to teach. Look what he says in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make, all, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. As we read these verses, what I want you to see is that this is not a passive or optional thing for us as believers. This is an active imperative for us to go. We see this word, therefore, and for those who are English majors, or if you've been in a sermon with me where therefore comes up, whenever therefore comes up, what should we be doing? Asking the question, what it is there for? And we see Jesus telling us to go therefore, and the beauty of that therefore that's there is reminding us of the authority that he has and that he is going to be with us. Jesus is saying, in this authority, go and make disciples. Because of my authority, when you are preaching the gospel faithfully, guess what? Disciples will be made. And I want you to see here, there isn't a hint of doubt or wavering that disciples will be made. It isn't go, therefore, and maybe disciples will be made. It isn't go, therefore, and hopefully disciples will be made. It is go, therefore, and make disciples telling us, giving us confidence that disciples will be made. And if you need confidence in sharing in the gospel, here it is. This therefore gives us that confidence because Jesus' authority and Jesus' commands 
give us this confidence in sharing his mission. So we go. We go and make disciples. And if you've heard me talk about going before, this this phrase can be translated, as you are going, make disciples. As you are going. That's why a gospel-centered disciple should be living on gospel mission, because everything you do should be proclaiming this mission, should be seeking to make disciples. So as you are going, in your home, at your workplace, in the coffee shops, at the gym, wherever it might be, and even areas of life that you may not want to go, Jesus is calling you to go and make disciples. I want you to see this because I I just picked up on this. I've preached this sermon before, and I have never really noticed or understood the context of all nations, right? And so I want you guys to see it, and hopefully a light bulb goes off. You see, when Jesus is saying to his disciples, "Go go and make disciples of all nations, who do you think that he is talking about that the disciples need to go to? He's not just talking about their Jewish brothers and sisters in the area of Jerusalem. We know in Acts 1.8, it says Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But think about the ends of the earth at that time. Where are they located? First, they're located in Rome. You know what just happened 40 days before? Rome put Jesus to death. So Jesus is saying, go to Rome and make disciples, even though they just crucified your Messiah. He's saying, go to the Samaritans who you despise and make disciples. Go to Egypt, that is the surrounding area around you, even though they have oppressed you and made your ancestors slavery. Go and make disciples. Go to the pagan nations around you who mock you because you have a monotheistic view of God, and make disciples. Don't stay in your comfort zones. Go to where it's uncomfortable, where people will mock you, despise you, persecute you, and make disciples. That's what all nations means. Jesus isn't just saying stay in Jerusalem. He's telling them to go and love the very people who enslaved them, who mocked them, and sought to destroy them. And this might be hard for us to hear, but that hasn't changed. The gospel commission, the great commission is still the same. To make disciples of all nations, not just people we're comfortable with. So are you actively seeking ways to do this? Are you actively seeking ways to share your life and the gospel with those God has placed around you as well as going into areas that might be uncomfortable for you? And I don't know what that might look like because there's a lot of people in this room and so that might be different for each and every person. But we are to go and share the gospel and make disciples of all nations, including the ones that make us uncomfortable. So as we are going, and as we are making disciples, we are called to baptize. Baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And we make disciples by baptizing them in the name of this triune God. And we do this because this is the mark of a believer the mark of the people of God. We found in the Old Testament there, it used to be circumcision just for the sons of Abraham, but now it has been extended to all who believe. This is the mark of a believer. It's the outward sign of an inward change of heart. And this isn't an option for us as believers. 
We are to be baptized and we are to baptize those who have placed their hope and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a signal to the world that our allegiance is no longer here. But it is in heaven. It is with the triune God and it is with his church. As Paul reminds us in Galatians 3 when he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you, are in, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, I know that we have a lot of transfer growth in our church. And what I mean by transfer growth, and, and this is not a negative, this is a good thing, but we have a lot of people who've come into Indianapolis, who've started their families, started their jobs, and have become a part of the district church, which I praise God for, we praise God for. We would not be here if it wasn't for this. But the point of our church, the point of the church God has called us to be is not just coming in as transfer, transfer growth. The mission of the church is to make disciples. And disciples seeing lost people saved, sinners reconciled back to God. Dead people born again. We long for these baptismal waters to move. And we have seen them move. We, we praise God that we've seen multiple baptisms over the last couple of years. William, Haley, Bowen, Linnea, Kiriana, Brad, and Haley. All of these people we can praise God for saving and that we could participate in this beautiful thing of baptism. This beautiful sign that these men and women have changed their allegiance from this world to the kingdom of God. But honestly, guys, this is the mission of our church, is to continue to go out and make disciples. And here's, here's a fun thing that might challenge you, might not, I hope it does. If you want practice on sharing the gospel with nonbelievers, I counted this week, there are 18 of them in those rooms over there. Think about it. You've got ample opportunity to share the gospel with 18 little boys and girls who need to hear it. And they need to hear it from people other than their parents. We want to come alongside their parents, but they also need to see men and women who live out the gospel in their lives, not just mom and dad. Mom and dad have a huge importance, and that's why we want to come alongside them. But our job as the church, when we do family dedication and we say, yes, we are coming alongside you as a family to show the gospel to your children, that's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're committing to. We are seeking to actively show these children the gospel. So if you're afraid to share the gospel out there, you've got ample opportunity and you can sign up at any time to share the gospel in here. So we make disciples, we go, we baptize, and we teach. We make disciples by teaching them to observe all that Jesus had commanded. As I said earlier, when we are making disciples, this isn't just an event, it isn't just one-time thing. This is a process that we have to understand that we are continually going and making disciples. And so whether it is making a disciple in somebody who has first put their hope and trust in Jesus, or it is coming alongside somebody and continuing to show that what Jesus has commanded, 
That, that, is, that is what making a disciple is. As we've said multiple times throughout this year, what we consider discipleship is just helping somebody love Jesus more. And so we're teaching how to do that. And we teach what Jesus commanded. Now, there are a lot of things that Jesus taught and showed us throughout the Scriptures, but I want to highlight the two that He sums up as the two greatest commandments when He talks about what the Old Testament taught. He tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then He tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And what he's doing here is he's summing up Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, and Leviticus 19, 9 through 19, where he says the law and the prophets and the writings can be condensed in these two commands. And what he's showing us that, that God has been teaching to his people throughout the Old Testament and into the New is that nothing has changed from the laws and the writings and the prophets to now as Jesus lives and walks and teaches his disciples, it's still the same call that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So this isn't new for us. And this isn't something new that we have to try to recreate. We make disciples by teaching all that Jesus had commanded, which is summed up in these two commands. Derwin Gray, in his book, The Good Life, shows a kind of three-style way in which we can teach these two commands. He calls it an upward way of living, an inward way of living, and an outward way of living. The upward is that we would love God correctly and completely. And this starts with us calling people to put their faith and hope in Christ Jesus as Lord to show them that he has provided a way to be reconciled back to a right relationship that had been fractured and marred by sin and to show them that he has authority over all heaven and over all the earth, that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords and we should worship him as such. And we are to teach our disciples, we, we are to grow in this knowledge and to love him with all of who we are all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. This is the upward way in which disciples are to live, to love the Lord correctly and completely. And in this love, our minds are transformed. As Paul reminds us in Romans 12, we're not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so we teach as, and, and we live in such a way that we have this upward lifestyle that loves the Lord completely and correctly. And then we teach disciples, and, and this might get a little, there might be a little bit of tension with this because I understand how this inward lifestyle can be perceived. And so I just want to throw my cards on the table when I talk about inward lifestyle, I'm talking about this last phrase where Jesus says, love the Lord or love your neighbors as yourself. And the Bible depicts a way in which we are to love ourselves correctly in light of how we love the Lord completely. I'm not talking about a self-centered, narcissistic way in which we are to view ourselves. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is we are to find our hope for all 
all that we are, all who we can be, we have to find that hope in Jesus. And that hope is rooted in our union with Christ. That's where that has to begin. We have to view ourselves in light of this union with Christ. And I love what Derwin Gray actually says about this inward lifestyle. He says, as we begin to love God more in a complete and correct way, then we love ourselves. Not in a narcissistic, self-centered way, but we begin to love ourselves because Jesus loved us and died for us. He thought it was worth the wrath of God to experience the cross because of his love for us. And if Jesus loves us this much, how could we not love ourselves correctly? How could we not show ourselves compassion and mercy? Again, not in a self-centered narcissistic way, but in a way in which we are looking at ourselves through the union with Christ. And when we do this, we begin to see ourselves as God sees us. And all that is true of Jesus is true of you and me. And it's because of him and him alone that we can call the Father our Father and that he loves us unconditionally. He loves us with an unfailing, never giving up, never walking out on us kind of love. We are forgiven of all of our shame, all of our filth, all of our sin, and that has been thrown into the sea of God's mercy and we are now holy and blameless. Our guilt has been washed away by God's waves of grace. All of our shame has been nailed to the cross. And all of our filthy rags of unrighteousness have now been exchanged with Christ's robe of righteousness that has been given to us. That is the way in which we are to look at ourselves through this union of Christ. And I bring this up and I, I think this is important, important enough I think that we should probably talk a little bit more about it in community groups so that I can move on to the next point. But this is important for us to understand because I think that when it comes to sin and how we view ourselves, we, we tend to not view ourselves the way that God views us. I, I tend to think that we don't show compassion to ourselves and mercy to ourselves the way that Scripture reveals to us because of our union with Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't love ourselves right? We are told to treat ourselves anytime we can. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a, a worldly self-love that only seeks to puff ourselves up, to give us pride. I'm, see, I, I'm seeking for us to understand a way in which the scriptures describe us through our union with Christ, and that we would preach to ourselves this union, right? David Tripp says, uh, Paul David Tripp says that nobody speaks to us more than we do. So what are we saying to ourselves? There's a beautiful book on uh, Psalm 42 and 43 by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones called Spiritual Depression. And in that book, he talks about how David preaches to himself in order to get out of his own depression, to get, get out of his own head. And he talks about this same mentality. Are you preaching to yourself this union with Christ? Are you preaching to yourself, how God sees you through the scriptures, that all that you have and all that he says about you 
is through this lens of Jesus. Because honestly, guys, how can we expect to love others well if we can't view ourselves correctly the way that God views us? How can we think to show mercy and compassion if we are not understanding the mercy and compassion that's been shown to us? Like you think about Jonah, right? The reason that Jonah had such a problem in showing mercy to the Ninevites is because he didn't understand mercy himself. And so we need to do that inward work of seeing God correctly and completely and worshiping with our whole self. And then in turn, looking and seeing through that lens how God views us because of our union with Christ. John Calvin says that knowing God this way leads to a knowledge of self. It's one of the reasons why I love reading and hopefully teaching on the attributes of God at some point in the Institutes. Because what it does is it leads me to see how infinite God is in his attributes. And it shows me my limitations and how finite I am. And that's what we need more of, right? We need more of the reality that we are finite, that we have limits. Because when we realize limits, or one of my favorite words, when we realize healthy boundaries in our lives because of God's infinite beauty and glory and majesty, it frees us. When I realize that I am not all-knowing and all-powerful and that I need to be everywhere for every person because I am not God, man, I have freedom. Freedom to serve, freedom to love, freedom to be there for one another. When I realize that I am limited, I can rest. And that's what I think a lot of us need in here is rest. And not just sitting on the couch watching Netflix resting. I'm talking about resting in God. That we are finite. And he is infinite. And he calls us to this rest. So this is the inward lifestyle. And then there's an outward that overflows from this. That we love our neighbor. We love our neighbor as ourselves. And so as we are pursuing God completely and correctly, as we are looking at ourselves through the right lens of our union with Christ, we then can love our neighbors. We can love our neighbors well. We can love our neighbors in such a way that people see the glory of God and our joy in living on mission. We are described as Paul would say in Philippians 2, where we consider others better than ourselves, that we look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we live outwardly that flows from how we view ourselves through the union with Christ that ultimately overflows from our love of the Lord with our whole self, mind, body, strength, and soul. And as we go about making disciples and teaching them to observe all that Jesus had commanded, we do this with confidence. Look at verse 20 with me, and hopefully you can find assurance and excitement in what Jesus tells his disciples. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the confidence that we have when we share the gospel and live gospel-centered lives on gospel mission. We have assurance that the God of this universe, the one who has all authority over heaven and earth, is with us. 
You see, at the beginning of Matthew, he begins this gospel message with this phrase, Emmanuel. Does anybody know what Emmanuel means? God with us. Yes. And what does he end this book with? I am with you. This I am statement isn't just the first time that Matthew brings this phrase up. It's found throughout this book to remind his disciples of his presence with them. And this is what he anchors this mission in, that he is with them. The same sovereign Lord who opens this book and and says, God with us, closes his commission with his presence. And so there's this personal assurance that we can have that God is with us, that he has all authority over heaven and earth, and he is with us as we go and share the gospel. But there's also a never-ending assurance that we find here. And I love this cadence that we see in verses 18, 19, and 20. The great comforter Jesus describes a universal statement in these verses. You see, in verse 18, we see that Jesus claims all authority in heaven and on earth. And then in verse 19, Jesus commands us to make disciples of all nations. And then in verse 20, Jesus further commands us to teach disciples all that I have commanded. And now Jesus, in the end of this commission, assures us his presence that he will always be with us, literally all the days of our lives. He who has authority over all is with us at all times. This is the comfort and assurance that we can have when we are living on gospel mission, when we trust and when we obey. We can have this confidence that we are not, on our, we are not by ourselves. We are not on our own. So guys, when your burden is heavy because a family member or a loved one who you have shared the gospel with countless times doesn't trust in Jesus, he's there. When your faith is tested because of your faithful pursuit of discipleship and preaching the gospel to a world that is antagonistic, who mocks you and seeks to persecute you, he is there. When you feel like you're ready to give up because it doesn't seem like there's any gospel fruit in your life as you've shared, he's there. When you lose friends or family members because of the faith that you have in Christ and in sharing the gospel, He is there. When your heart is broken because you have loved ones that you long to know the goodness of God's gracious mercy, He's there. Hebrews tells us He will never leave us nor forsake us. And Jesus promises at the end of His commission to His disciples, I am with you always to the end of the age. We have an assurance that is never ending, that we can have hope in, that when we feel despair, when we long for those friends and families and loved ones to know the gospel, it just feels too burdensome. He's there. He is there. And you can run back to that truth. So we make disciples by trusting in Jesus' authority, obeying his commands, and having confidence in his presence. But I want to close with this. I want to close with joy. 
Because joy is really what leads to mission, right? Joy is what leads us to go and share this good news of the gospel, that we have been saved, that God has transformed our hearts. He's brought us from the domain of darkness into the marvelous light, and he has called us his own. This should bring us joy. J.A. Metters in his book, Gospel Deep, says, gospel mission grows out of gospel enjoyment. All that I've said to you this morning from Matthew 28, I pray that you find hope and comfort, but most importantly, I hope that you find joy. That you would have joy that God calls you a son and daughter. That you would have joy that he has reconciled you to the Father. That you have been brought in. That your sin has been defeated on your behalf. And that Christ justifies you before God. And he's robed you with his righteousness. We are like the younger brother being brought in. The robe has been given The lamb is being prepared. We are going to celebrate as the younger brother that the father calls us his own and that he has brought us back in despite all that we have done against him. We should have joy. And this enjoyment should lead us to go and share the gospel. As Martin Luther has said, we are just beggars trying to tell other beggars where to find bread. Gospel mission is more than just swaying people from internal damnation. It is inviting them to the table of God's glory that He and He alone can satisfy your soul. And I hope that you meditate on that daily as you open the Scriptures. And my prayer is that you would have joy that leads to gospel mission, that overflows into your life and into the areas that God has called you to, and that it encourages you to go to places that might be, that might bring trials and temptations, that might bring persecution, that might bring tension into your life. We are to go and make disciples because of the joy that we have that God calls us His own. And one of the tangible ways that we enjoy this gospel message, every single gathering, is through communion. The beautiful picture of receiving this communion, this picture of amazing grace that Christ would die for our sins and that God would call us his own, that he would shed his blood on the cross, taking the wrath of God on our behalf, dying and resurrecting from the grave that sealed our adoptions as sons and daughters of God. So if you don't have the elements, I would ask that you get up and go ahead and grab some, and we're going to celebrate in receiving communion this morning and praising God for the joy that we have received in Christ. As you were sitting and grabbing the elements, I I want us to remember that this isn't just an individual act when we take communion, but a corporate one. Christ made a way for sinners to be reconciled back to a right relationship with God. But when I say sinners, I don't mean sinners as in a singular. I, I mean it plural with an S, that God has saved. When we look around for those who are taking communion, God has saved each and every one of you. As we look around and see who God has reconciled to himself, we are seeing those who we will one day worship in glory with. 
And so that's what I love about communion is that we can remember our past and praise God for what he's done, but we can look around and see these are people I'm going to be worshiping with in eternity forever at the foot of the throne of Jesus Christ. And we look forward to that day. And communion helps us look forward to that promise and the reality that Matthew 28, that all nations, that we are to make disciples of all nations, will be fulfilled, as Revelation 7 tells us. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is what we get to look forward to. And this is what communion reminds us of, is not only what Christ has done for us by the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood, but when we look around, we see those who are a part of the family of God and we can celebrate together. So I'm gonna read 1 Corinthians 11 and we're, just, we're gonna do just that. We're going to celebrate what Christ has done for us. Paul writes, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us proclaim his death here and now. And I will close this in prayer and we can continue to worship in song. Lord, you are good. And we thank you for not only this mission that you've called us to, this great endeavor to go and make disciples of all nations. Lord, we thank you that you have saved us and called us your own first and foremost that you have adopted us as sons and daughters. Lord, may this reality bring us joy. And may this joy overflow into our lives where we live on gospel mission as gospel-centered disciples who love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and who seek to love others as ourselves. Lord, I pray that this would be the mark of our church that your kingdom would grow and that we would be excited to share this good news of the gospel wherever we are. Help us have confidence. Help us, trusting, to, help us to trust in your authority, to obey your commands, and Lord, to have confidence in your presence with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at